0: I think that today, if you want to be true to your heart, you have to be much more of a hustler. And you have to stay a hustler.
1: Edgar Keret is a wonderful Israeli writer who specializes in short stories, but he also writes poems, essays, and films. Both of his parents survived the Holocaust, and they passed on to him a love and appreciation of stories. He publishes books. He's frequently on This American Life, And he has a substack called Alphabet Soup. Today, we talk about the value of stories, the importance of art that can sometimes be upsetting, his opposition to sensitivity readers, and finding contentment in the age of social media. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Edgar Carrot. Edgar Carrot, thank you very much for being on The Active Voice. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you for having me. You've written in the past about your upbringing and your family life and what it was like to have parents who grew up during the Holocaust. And I read something you said along the lines of, it has encouraged you to seek out a life that is full of spiritual richness rather than material richness.
0: And I'd like you to start off by telling me what you mean by that. Well... Both my parents were Holocaust survivors. My mother lost all her family. She was orphaned. She lost her brother. She lost practically any person that she ever knew. And when they raised me and my siblings, it was something almost heartbreaking in the fact that they wanted what's best for us, but they felt that they never had an experience of that thing. You know, so they really wanted to groom us for something that they didn't know what that thing exactly was they had to, to work to support themselves uh, basically since the age of eight or nine and never stopped, you know. they And when they knew, they knew that they were able to kind of secure for us uh, free time and the ability uh, to give us options that, that they didn't have, they really didn't know how to send us the right way. And it was a little bit as if they were helping us all the way to some kind of wall. And then they said, climb on our back so we'll get on the other side. But we really don't have any idea what's waiting there. And with my parents, basically the only thing that they didn't want us to be was to be rich and successful. Not because they were against it, but it was something that they could understand that this wasn't the life that they were seeking. <clears throat> so everything that had to do with uh, trying to transcend, trying to get to a place that they were not able to. And helping other people seemed to them like a great idea. And in the end, uh, my brother, the eldest, he became a, a, a political activist uh, in the extreme liberal anti-Zionist left in Israel. And he started the legalized marijuana movement in Israel. Right. My My sister, she became a very extreme Jewish ultra-orthodox She has uh, 11 children and more than 50 grandchildren at the age of 60. Wow. And I became a writer. And it seemed as if our parents were really, really happy. None of us became rich. And we all kind of picked our own path, ones that that we could have only reached with the support of our parents because we didn't have to work for our living from an early age. And in that sense, you know, my father used to say, you know, I have a daughter that prays for me. I have a son who writes stories for me, and I have a son who rolls a joint for me. Like, who could be who could be a happier father?
1: I, I dare not ask who the favorite might have been. Isn't
0: <laughs> is isn't that an interesting
1: response from your parents, though, to the to the tragedy that they were brought up among uh, amidst? Because I've seen it go the other way, where people who are uh, who come from sort of insecure. Backgrounds for whatever reason, or the recent immigrants and trying to establish themselves in a new nation, seek out security and surety and um, stability. Where your parents seem to have gone the opposite way and said, You don't have to go get that house with the picket fence and the, the dog and the car in the driveway. You should instead go look for your satisfaction or your security uh, internally through creativity, through creativity, through culture. Uh, were your parents unusual in that way? Or was this a common response from people who had that kind of upbringing?
0: Oh, well, my parents were unusual in so many ways. <laughs> and all of them I found very positive. But but what I think about my parents is that because they were tre- children of war and basically kind of operating in a system where there was not much parental or adult authority then basically it's like kind of like Lord of the Flies in that sense that they made the word, they made the rules, they made the ways that they would grasp it. I remember that one of the things that my father told me as a child, and I think that it's something that affected the way I saw the word and maybe made me writer, was that uh, when he was a child during the war, he hid in a hole in the ground and he had to stay in, in that hole for more than 600 days. And the hole was really, really like small. He was there with his parents, but basically it was too shallow for them to stand and it was uh, too narrow for them to lie. So they were basically sitting for two years, you know. there. And when, when the Russians liberated that part, part of a, a Belarus, they were unable to move their muscles, you know. They, were, they suffered from such a contraction. Wow. And my father told me that every morning when he would wake up, He would try to think of a parallel universe in which everything was exactly the same as it was in his world, only he would change one detail. So, for example, he would live in a world where there would be Nazis seeking Jews in hidings, but when they would catch the Jews, they would give them sweets. Or there would be Nazis who have some kind of racial theory, but the racial theory kind of focused on a beautiful, uh, red-headed girls. And then my father would make up a story that this red-headed girl that, you know, he's hiding her in his attic and he saves her from the Nazis and she falls in love with him. And the next day, my father would change another detail and make up another story. And as a child, I kind of uh, rebelled against it. I thought it was totally stupid thing to do. And I said to my father, like, What's the point in that? You know, you are in the holy ground, Nazis killed your sister. What What, does, what difference does it make? And he says, well, uh, what I felt was that uh, everything I can imagine is a possibility. And he said, and when you're in a very narrow space, by creating more possibility, suddenly you feel that you're le- le- less in a dead end. And I think that, you know, that my father was basically a child that would get up every day and, you know, while you be uh, mowing the lawn or doing the dishes or doing your homework or, you know, or doing all the chores that a, a a child would make, then he basically would sit for 15 hours and think, you know. So, of course, he came out something that was totally not standard, you know. For example, after surviving the war, he had this idea that he doesn't want to live only one life. He wants to live many lives. So every seven years he would change his profession, Mm. even if he would be successful in what he had done before. And that created some kind of an economical reality that in my childhood, there were times where we were extremely poor and then we were upper middle class and then we were poor again. And it Mm. was Uh, all normal and kind of made made sense to the family because we were doing it because we were going with my dad and we didn't want to have a dad who will not live the life that he wanted to live. So if being poor would be part of it, then all of us, you know, won't buy new shoes or won't get a big meal, you know, but it's kind of okay because this is the priorities that we set. Or on another thing, it's like we didn't function as a family in that sense that when my father would earn some money, we had a drawer where he would cash all his salary and put it in a drawer. And since I was three years old, my father said, allowances are for children and families in which people don't trust each other. But I trust you guys. So you can take out as much money as you want and you don't have to report to me. You know, you're my children, I trust you. So what really happened was, that since the age of five, I tried to create a money-making job for myself because I felt bad that I only take money, Mm. you know, from the kibbutz, you know, but don't Mm -hmm. give money to this communist uh, initiative. And all those kind of things, you know, I'm not sure, you know, if they're psychologically sound. My parents didn't think much of psychologists. But it kind of gave you this uh, feeling of freedom and independence and this idea that individuality was the most important thing. You know, it's like in Israel, the status of Holocaust survivors is a very clear and almost rigid one. It's like a war veteran or somebody, you know. So whenever uh, there is Holocaust Memorial Day, they ask people who are survivors to come and speak, you know, in uh, ceremonies. And my mother refused to go. And when they said to her, why don't you go? And she said, with all due respect, I don't work in the Holocaust. You know, I'm a woman who lived her life and something happened in her past. And I pay my taxes, but nobody will tell me where to go and about what you should talk, you know. And she totally challenged even the idea of what does it mean to be a Holocaust survivor? I remember that that as a child, we once went to see a doctor And there were only two chairs outside of the doctor's office. And there was a mother and a child sitting there. And, you know, it's a small town. So the mother said to the child, get up. And when he was reluctant, she pushed him again. She said, get up. She's a Holocaust survivor. And he got up and my mom didn't sit. And she said to the child, do you know what it means that I'm a Holocaust survivor? And the kid said, yes. And she said, what does it mean? And he said that I should feel pity for you. Mm. And uh, my mother says, you know, I think it actually says something completely different. I think that it says that if, if you, me and your mother will stand and a lot of time will pass and they won't give us water and it will be very cold and very warm and then very cold again, then it's much more likely that your mother and you will fall down to the ground before me. So I suggest that you keep your seat. Mm-hmm. And there was something in this, that was for me kind of a lesson that uh, I must say, totally opposite to identity politics, as it teach us today, that you are the master of your own identity. You know, my mother used to listen to Wagner, and listening to Wagner was forbidden in Israel because he was an anti-Semite, and the Nazis loved his music. And when neighbors would come and complain, and my mother would say, I listen to the music I like. I don't care if Nazis liked it. She said they also liked apples. So you want me not to eat apples just because Nazis liked apples? I don't care. And and I think that it, it in a strange way, they were like Holocaust survivors looking from the exterior as very kind of a, a normative, almost Puritan people. But in their mind, they were very, very radical and free and wanted to get the most out of life and not to kind of walk the path of it are you grateful for having had that
1: as the backdrop to your life to be have to have the freedom to have the permission to go do
0: something crazy like be a professional writer uh, for sure i must say that you know that my parents didn't push me so much to be a writer they actually wanted me to be a mathematician and i was pretty good with math mm. but at the bottom line and that's the i think the most beautiful thing about my parents is that they, they really knew what they wanted for each of us, but they also ex- accepted the fact that we're calling the shots and that whatever we decide is the thing that should be done. You know, it's a, I was in Ira Glass' show and I was telling this story that when my mother f- thought that she, she's beginning to become demented, mm. she asked me that the moment she become demented, I'll suffocate her or i strangle her with a pillow. Yeah. And when I refused and I said to her, mother, I don't have it in me. I can't kill you. She didn't accept the fact that I didn't have it in me. She insisted that I did have it in me. And that if I ever need to, she's sure that I'll kill anybody who needs killing. But she said, but you don't feel like doing it. And the fact that you don't feel like doing it is enough. If you don't want to kill me, you're my son. I will never force you to do anything. And it was very, very easygoing. So so there was something in the structures that was very, very clear that the norms of the world were in the second place. And in the first place was our unconditional love and a willingness to do whatever we need to protect the people close to us. And that would mean that, uh, that let's say, if my mother uh, would need to lie to my teacher or forge a papers, you know, in my behalf, then she would do that without even winking. You know, it never seemed to her a problem. Like if I would do something that is would seem immoral to her, if I would go next to a beggar in the street without saying hello or without giving him a coin, you know, I would be severely punished for that. But if I would say to my mom, you know, there is an exam tomorrow, but I feel like going to the beach would it be okay if I don't go and you write a letter that I had a pneumonia, then my mom would say, sure, how about I'll do it four days? Because I seen the forecast that tomorrow and the day after tomorrow <laughs> is gonna to be sunny days too, you know?
1: Yeah, you've written a lot about both your parents, both of whom to seem to be very, very strong characters. And there's the Ira Glass show you've referenced here as a, an episode of America This American Life that is dedicated to these vignettes about your mother, who is a force of nature. Uh, she sounds like uh, incredibly creative and courageous. Also, quite uh, aggressive when she needs to be, and very protective of those that she she loves and loved, and and those she keeps close to her, and and very uh, puts up a strong force field uh, against those who she might want to keep out. And I I wonder, like that strong sense of compassion, that strong admiration for your mother, these memories that you have of her growing up the way that she communicated values to you based on uh, what she had learned from the horrors she'd seen. To what extent did this push you into a life of storytelling and respect for stories? And why, you know, to what extent do you think it resulted in you choosing the path of the writer?
0: Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure that with different parents I would have never became a writer. And it's not because... Ever kind of consciously talked about the literature as being something important in their life. Both of them read a lot and uh, in six and and in seven languages because they were children of war and they spoke a lot of languages. But I think that uh, that the thing that first connected me to to storytelling was the fact that uh, my mother would tell me bedtime stories when I was a child, and her parents would tell her bedtime stories too in the ghetto. And the thing about it, it was that they, in the ghetto, they had no access for, to children's books. So they had to make up those stories. And as a child, she liked the fact that they had to make it up. And she felt that in this environment where they could give her very little, this was kind of an act of generosity. And they, for her, the idea of kind of not telling us bedtime stories and reading to us bedtime stories was like kind of outsourcing something that is very intimate. It it would be like kind of ordering a pizza instead of making your children dinner, you know? So she gave a lot of importance to that. And I felt that because she would tell me a bedtime story every night. And I could see that she was very good at it, but I could also see that she prepared it. Like I could say to you that actively, every day while working, she would think I would guess something like at least 30 minutes about what story she's going to tell me at night. So, so it kind of like echoed the fact that I was in her heart, you know? Mm. And I think that growing up, I kind of grew up with the fact that making up a story for some, somebody is the ultimate act of generosity. It's something that you do only to people that you really, really love. Mm. And I think that when you come up and you say, wow, there is this something, it means a lot. It, it kind of projects something in me. It kind of, it creates intimacy. It touches somebody. It's so great, you know, then you're more inclined when you grow up to say, wow, you know, I wish I could do something like that. I wish I, that I could make up a story. I wish that I I could give this kind of a, or share this kind of emotions with people and make them feel close to me and makes them feel protected and surprised and, and hypnotized by life. And, you know, and curious about, What's going to happen tomorrow? You know, it's really all, all, it seemed like such an amazing gift that to be able to to do that was something that I really wanted. And again, you know, the fact that I experienced it in such a way doesn't necessarily mean that the people who would receive the stories would feel the same. It's more like an ethos. So when I would see my mother telling me her stories, thinking about her parents telling her a story, then it wasn't even my experience it was just seeing her pride and her wish to give me something and just seeing her face made me want to be able to feel that way sometimes in the future and for your
1: father as well it was the way he stayed alive it seems in the in the hole out there during the um during the war by telling himself stories by using his imagination by imagining um, a, a, a slightly better world, even if it was only one thing was different from reality each time that must have had an, an impact on you.
0: I, I think, you know, it, it's really like sometimes I need to talk a lot to come up with the short conclusion. I think both my parents survived the war by living the life in their minds. And this idea is that when they went back to no, normal, they still didn't kind of went back to living the life outside. They still kept some of this kind of inner life. Yeah. And I think that that what they shared with me was this ability to live life in your mind. And when you, you keep this space in your mind, then then it's kind of a story space. It's a, an imagination space. You can do a lot of artsy things with with them. My parents didn't see it as a, an artsy space. They They thought it was part of their survival skill. But in the bottom line, this was what allowed me to create later on. That allows you to have a richer
1: spiritual life, I imagine. But is there any part of you that wishes that you invested more in going after the material life? In the United States, it's almost a blasphemy to say, turn your back on the material life.
0: Well, well you know, my son uh, says uh, that I'm I'm, a, I'm much more bet I'm better at in making money than in spending money. <laughs> and the thing I think about it is that he doesn't, thinks that I make a lot of money. It's just that he is, I re, I'm really not very comp- competent when it comes to spending money. It's a, the, like the most important thing to me was to live close, a walking distance from the beach. Mm-hmm. I usually go, walk, go by foot to all my meetings in the city. In, in Tel Aviv, a, right? In Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. I don't have a car. We live in a very small apartment because actually I also, I don't like big apartments. I like small spaces. I grew up, with my brother and my sister in a room. And when, when my father started making more money and we moved to an apartment where, in which we all have a separate room, we swore to each other that we'll all stay in the same room. and won't uh, go to the other rooms. So, so basically I think, uh, you know, I, I'm not a big eater and I'm a vegetarian and, you know, and I don't eat a lot. So, and the things that I like the most is basically sitting in the balcony and thinking weird thoughts, you know. So, so I think that in that if I, if I had a lot of money, for sure I would spend it. And I think that you know I would either try to do philanthropic stuff or whatever, but I would probably burn most of it on doing like these kind of artistic projects, you know. My brother has this idea of a ballet dancing in zero gravity in space. So I would kind of build him a satellite to do that. But I'm saying I, it's not that I'm incapable of, of of spending as much money as you give me, but it's just that I don't feel that I lack man, money. And do you feel content? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> I think that my initial take on what it means to be a human being and live your life, I think it's a super difficult chore, really. I think that, you know, people that die from old age and are connected to their emotion and don't kill themselves before that, they, they should get a medal. It's really like, I mean, it's a crazy, crazy effort. I mean, I mean, if you kind of uh, cut yourself from your emotion, if you don't really live your dilemmas, if you living in an automatic pilot, Still, you know, your back is going to hurt and, you know, there is a chance you, that you or somebody close to you will die in a car accident or from cancer or I don't know. It's really like, I mean, even then <laughs> it's hell, but but if you're a sensitive and reflexive human being, then it's, it's really, really crazy. If I have to think about it, some kind of a metaphor for life is like somebody walking a straight line while a lot of stuff falls from above, you know, a piano, a knife, a screwdriver. Mm -hmm. And basically most of those things, they miss him. And some of them he dodges, but he still have a screwdriver in one of his his, his shoulder, you know, a blade that ran into it. And he goes and he bleeds and he hopes that nothing will fall on him or on his pet or on his wife or on his loved ones, you know. But basically, you know, I I don't, this is the image of, of life that I see. And I'm not saying that while you're doing it, you don't see beautiful flowers and you don't hear a wonderful story and, you know, and you can not learn how to play the flute while things are falling all around you. But I'm saying that it's a, I don't think that life is kind of a, a priorically amazing. I think it's a struggle. I think that on the winning side, there are so much amazing things to win. I think that we live in a world where the ethos or, or let's say the, the herd mentality drives us many times away from actually from the things that could make, make us super content and evolve and sends us to, to those places. I don't know why people want to go there. But, but in the bottom line, I feel that, let's say, considering that setup, I think I'm one of the luckiest people on earth. But it would be like a little bit more like somebody who got really the presidential suite in the Titanic you know, it's really like the bed is great and the food is amazing. But if you ask me about the macro level, I really think that this is really tough.
1: So this is partly where I was driving with my setup here. You've chosen a life where you can have a rich interior spiritual experience and nourishment. And you one of your favorite things to do is sit in the balcony and just think weird thoughts and pour yourself into creative projects. And I wonder if the, in the current environment, what are the chances that other people can do the same, and like live the same life? Or, you know, how hard do they have to work to have a same life? This herd mentality thing that you also mentioned, we live in a time of hyper-connectedness and social media, uniting people, but also making it harder, counterintuitively, to be independent-minded because of these massive groupthink encouraging forces. Is that what you're referring to when you talk about this is a Titanic going down? Is it is it like harder to have the life that Edgar Carrot has
0: chosen and that Edgar Carrot is living? Well, first of all, I think it's it's funny that, uh, you know, John Lennon has these saying that uh, if he w- would have lived in Roman times, he would have wanted to live in Rome. You know, they ask him why he lives in New York and not in England. He says, like, I want to be where things happen. But the, my father always told me that in times of great wars and turmoil, he says, always head for the smallest village. Mm. Because, like, you know, the, the furthest away you are from the eye of the hurricane, you know, during, during the Second World War, there were villages where people didn't even know that Nazis existed. They were kind of busy... With other things, you know, the cows were sick, you know. So I actually, I think that we are now living in a chaotic time. And a lot of the stuff that I'm doing is basically this attempt to create this uh, little village that is not so much there in the middle. And I can say that, you know, starting my substack and doing alphabet soup mm. basically came from that because I really said to myself, you know, I, I don't feel that I can rely on the outside the the way I used to, that if I have a story, I'll be able to place the story that I want to write the way I want to write it on a pedestal where uh, some people would read it and accept it and have some kind of a dialogue with me. So this had become less and less trivial. And I said, if I can create a community that for me would justify my writing on the go, you know, that there will be, I don't know, like 100 people, 10,000 people, 1,800, doesn't matter, like, but a number of people that are interested in reading me and that are interested in kind of sharing their thoughts about my writing, then I know that from there, I can go to publishers, magazines, newspapers, I can go to anywhere, I don't have to give any of these up, but this is a, my bunker. Mm-hmm. This is uh, my attic. This is the place where I can go and hide. And it's not like uh, I don't know Facebook, where where when the wind changes suddenly you you have all those trolls and monsters going around on your page. There I know I admitted those people. You know, as a reserve for a very long time, they get a lot of mails in their in, uh, on their inboxes that even deleting would have taken effort. So I think we have a relationship, and that's a, and that's exactly what what I think that this time calls for i think that if in let's say 20 or 25 years ago i would say i want to get a, a more central stage then now i say to myself i want to be in a place where i be in control and i can do what i can do and if this thing is peripheral then that's fine with me you know i w- i wouldn't want to pay some of the prices that uh, I'll need to pay to go to a central uh, stage, you know? And I'm just talking, you know, about about the fact that, that, let's say, when I write and I publish what I write, I don't want to have an argument in my head with a sensitivity reader. Right. I really don't. Uh, just to be clear, I think that, for example, you know, I'm a filmmaker, and I think that the fact that today, when there are intimate scenes, there are experts they talk to the director and the actors how to do it in 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 a way that won't hurt anybody. I think that this is totally needed. But when it comes to sensitivity readers, I say, you know, the reason I needed this person on the set was that people won't get hurt, that nobody will get harassed on the set. That's why I need the person. But when somebody writes a book, it is not real. You know, I go to movies, I see... Earth being destroyed, I see people murdering other people. I don't need somebody uh, to tell me that some of the things that are being done are wrong. That's the, the idea of it, you know. W- when when you read Max and Moritz, you know, in the end, they take the two children and they mine them into meat and they feed them to the pigs, you know. That's what they do. It's a children fairy tale. You know, in Little Red H- Riding Hood, you know, a, a grandmother is being Uh, eaten alive you know there's no way that this would have gotten past a sensitivity reader but the way i see it is that the literary space and in that sense movies and tv they're like this kind of padded room in which we can ventilate stuff that we have in our mind ambiguous stuff stuff that is not necessarily helpful for society you know stuff that could be maybe a borderline perverse you know and that's why we do it in writing and we don't do it in action. Now, when somebody comes to me and said, you know, I felt uncomfortable in your scene when the uh, the older brother tortures the little brother for telling about him to his parents, then I say, you know what? Maybe I wanted you to feel this way because this was the way that I felt when I wrote it. And I didn't write to say to, say to you, go and torture your little brother. I wanted to write to, to you to say, Look what terrible things people can do to people that they love. And this is what I wanted to share. And if this is too much for you, you can close your book. But the idea is that there is something about the dialogue about art in this day, Mm -hmm. that it's very much like the fundamentalist religious Mm -hmm. dialogue about art, because the way that it it deals with art, it thinks that art is a lesser form of reality. It's something that serves reality. We're doing art to educate people. We're doing art to make them better people. But this is not the role of art. You know, it's really, it's really if we want people to act better, it's not by showing them portrayal of, of words in which people are better. It's by making this world better. If you talk to people who are very extreme Christian, very extreme Jews, very extreme Muslims, they wouldn't let their children read books because they feel that it's not a controlled uh, environment. Today, I feel that many of the liberal thoughts of many of my friends does exactly the same. It basically says, you know, we don't trust human imagination. We don't trust these things that people kind of write whatever they're in their mind. So I'm saying, you know, think about Lolita, for example, as a book. I think Lolita is a very humanizing book, but in the bottom line, today, there are uh, many ist- institutes that won't teach it because it humanizes a pedophile. Now, I think that humanizing a pedophile and uh, supporting uh, the idea of somebody being pedophile, it's not the same thing. The idea is that everything that is human is not strange to us, as a great Greek philosopher said, had said but at the same time, The fact is that if you don't uh, express something, it doesn't make it disappear. So what
1: convinces you this is actually a problem though, because, or this sort of authoritarian approach to culture, because the counter to what you would say, what you're saying now is that actually we're evolving as a culture. We're leaving behind past bigotries and becoming more aware of the people around us, people who are in different circumstances, people from different cultures, we're decentering our own experiences. Well, you
0: should tell you should tell that to the Palestinians and Arabs living in Israel and to the black people in, living in the US. I'm sure that it it would make them happy. <laughs> so so but my, my question really is,
1: because I don't want to just wholesale accept this for the people who have a slightly different point of view on this. And you know, the the people who are arguing in the opposite direction. Will say that these claims of, or might say that these claims of authoritarian behaviors creeping into culture, like, are way overstated. You know, sensitivity readers hardly anyone has them. They're just a small like thing on the a, a, small, a small part of a wider process. You know, un, unpalatable books are still being published. White men are still dominating all these industries. they Are still getting films and uh, TVs made. Like what? What? What is it that convinces you that this is a real strain that needs to be kind of counteracted?
0: Well, well first, first of all, you know what? What I actually think that happened is that the only place where the hegemonic photo of a, a heterosexual white man being in charge is actually uh, at the head of most of the studios, the head of uh, Netflix. Uh, I don't know Netflix personally, but all those streamers. If you go there, you will find a lot of white men. If you go and look for a leading story, leading series, you know, if you look for directors and screenplay writers, you find much less white men. And I think that, you know, it's almost kind of a a deal in silence, kind of, you know, this idea, we'll do what you guys want, want to do, just get off our back. You know, do you see anybody asking that there will be, let's say, more entertainment lawyers, entertainment agents that will be of minorities, you know, do you know any of such people who are, let's say, dominant in the market and they belong to minority? Because I don't know any. I wonder how you
1: feel about this, given that you hold these positions um, and given the context of the current moment, often the rejoinder on social media is by participating in the bad discourse. You were supporting literal Nazis. And as someone who grew up with a life deeply affected by Nazism, what does that make you feel?
0: Well, I, I, I can say, again, you know, when, my, when people ask my mother not to listen to Wagner, mm. when my father had a copy of Mein Kampf in German in our home, because he said, if he, somebody killed my entire family, I should know what he had in his head, you know? This is the tradition that I grew, grew up in. It's basically, I think it's the opposite of a identity culture. You know, it's really, it's this idea that you're an individual, that nobody will uh, reduce you to something that is less than what you want. I can tell you, for example, about my father. Uh, my father was uh, in the Irgun, which is basically a right-wing party, which most of the Holocaust survivors joined. Uh, it was kind of almost a, a traditional thing. Like the, the the people who were old time, they voted labor and the, and the immigrants would vote for the right wing. So my father uh, would be a part of this party that is now Netanyahu's party. Like my father never voted for Netanyahu because he said that he didn't understand the ideology. And when his mother died and she had an apartment in the same building that we lived in, He rented this apartment to an Arab in the 70s, an Israeli Arab. It was a time where the Israeli society was even more racist. And the idea of somebody who has a choice and who insists on renting it to an Arab because he likes the guy and because he feels that they live in the same building. So if anybody would want to mess with his Arab tenant, then my father would be able to come out and stand by him. And the idea is, that, you, okay, you know, I have some ideas about where the broad, borders of Israel should go, but this doesn't mean that I'm not a human being. And if you say that you're also a right-winger, but you don't want an Arab in your buildings and you're a racist, you're not somebody who fights for greater Israel, you're somebody who fights for Jewish superiority. I'm saying that that everything is now is being turned upside down. And I think that it's a very, very challenging time for artists. And And the idea of, let's say, having a newsletter is basically saying, you know what, here is a place where I can feel free and liberated and it's a small enough space that nobody would bother me.
1: Are there other ways that you can advise artists to fight back? Like how can they remove themselves from the dominant cultural forces in this way? How can they... Survivors artists, how can they protect their minds?
0: Well, again, you know, I think that it's easier when you're a writer. I think it's much more difficult when you, if you're a filmmaker or a, a playwright, right? Because you need institutions and you need money. And the moment that you need that, then really it's like, I can say to you that, let's say, I'm a filmmaker. I like making film. I currently don't even fantasize about making a film because I know that there is no way that I'll be able to make the film I want to make. You know, I can, I can find my way into a, a production, you know, I can write something. I can, I can direct something maybe, but you know, but if I do that, I I will have to do it under so many restrictions, pleasing so many people that I would really feel that I'm not a, a loyal to the audience that's going, that is going to see what I'm making. mm mm-hmm. So I mean, in the last few years, uh, today there is, there is a, a new a short animation movie that I made with a friend that is just it's now a Vimeo. A... It was supposed to
1: it was supposed to be published about one hour before we started our conversation yeah. today. So I haven't had the privilege of seeing it yet
0: because yeah, it wasn't
1: it wasn't published on time.
0: No, it wasn't. But, but, but and it's a Polish Israeli production because it was a way for me to make the film, and mm. I, I made a. A textual exhibition about my ma- my mother in the Jewish Museum in Berlin because this right. was a place where I could do that. And before that, I made uh, with another friend a, a video dance about the corona, oh, huh, huh. which was a Japanese-Israeli co-production. And it was because I could get money from Japan. I had a chance to work with a choreographer I really liked. So I the, the way what I think that there is about this word is that I think that in the past, in many things, but in art even more so, then you would say, I I will go, I will graduate, I will get myself a position. And from this position, I'll keep advancing and everything will be okay. But I think that we now live in a very kind of a guerrilla world. And in this guerrilla world, the question is, do I want to make another movie or do I want to express myself? So if the only way I can express myself right now is in an exhibition, in a newsletter, in a video dance, in in a radio show, uh, in this American life, you know, it doesn't matter. Then I'm saying that I'm trying to channel my creativity to the cracks that I see in the world. And I'm not trying to say to myself, my identity is a playwright and I haven't made a, a theater play in five years. So I should do another one. I'll do another one if I have an opening, you know, if I have an idea that will connect to guys that will let me do that. But I think that today, if you want to be true to your heart, you have to be much more of a hustler. And you have to stay a hustler.
1: How simpatico do you think creating art and being a hustler is? Not everyone's like that, right?
0: No, I I think that that, that creating art is inherently being a hustler. Because I think that if you think about, let's say, there is a, a club and you have to hustle your way in. Now, a writer, the fact that you write, you're already hustling because you could have lived. But the fact that you write means that you are not happy enough in what you have in life. There are things that you want to do and you can't do. There are things that you want to say and you can't say. And that's why you why you write. So you're already looking for a trick, for ways that is not opening for others, for a shortcut, you know? So I think that you're inherently hustling. And I tell you something about hustlers. I think that hustlers, many times, they're... Deep inside of them, there are basically people who can't bear reality as it is. I think that, you know, if somebody, ha- if there are four brothers and one becomes a hasser, I would say that there is a good chance that the three others are coping with reality in a better way. And I think that artists inherently are people who don't deal with reality in a good way. Because if they de- dealt with it in a good way, they wouldn't need to revert to art. Is that a healthy thing, do you think? Well, I think, look, if I could have been a happy person and not create and not be an artist, then I would do that. You know, I really, I'm not doing it for the next generations, but I'm saying that for me, uh, being a creative and creating thing, it's really my way of, of coping with the fact that I don't get the word, that I see a lot of meanness around me, that I'm not able to create a, a proper dialogue with other people that I can't express the ideas that I have in my mind without people kind of mistaking them for something that is different and that it's not what I meant. So I'm saying out of all those frustration comes art and art helps me not be a bitter, frustrated person. But I'm saying I would rather not have any problems to begin with.
1: Right. And given what we're going through in this current moment and the life that artists have to lead, do you see hope for artists? Is there a way to a better life for artists? Is there a is there a way to a better sort of system that can support arts? Or do you think we're in a point of no return now?
0: No, I think there's never a point of no return. You know, I think I think that uh, life is like this never-ending uh, Netflix series. You know, <laughs> but now it feels like an end of a season episode. You know, it's like everything everywhere at once kind of feeling. Every like, and of course, something else will come out of it. You know, I'm saying. Uh, there is this aspect of me being used to a different word and being nostalgic because in that word I was younger and you know and the no back problems no neck problems <laughs> but 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 I think that they, but I think that, that that kind of if I go if I go beyond that then we've been going on the force of inertia and doing the stuff that we used to to do and things that changed. And I think that the only way to deal with it is to be reflexive and find solutions. Let, let's say, for example, I can present what I think one of the world's most major problem. Today, I don't have a solution, but you're innovators and maybe you'll find a solution. Now, what I think is that when we talk about people and countries, it's something that really kind of worked perfectly in the 20th century. But today, what happens is all of us, we live in communities that understand us and share our views, but those communities are on the social media. So it means that there are a lot of people in the world that really get us, but the people who don't get us are the people who live across the street, the people we have to bump to because the people that don't get us, me in the internet, they're not in my feed. You know, when I look for movies about cute cats, they're not there. There's nobody there saying, what what's your obsession with cats, you know? But if I go to the street, then somebody would say, what's with this cat, you know, it's bothering me. And then those people will be the people that are my worst enemies and the people that I would want to confront with, confront with the most. So let's say if you look at the U.S. or Israel or Turkey, then basically what you see is some kind of a partisan society split to two camps. Usually one of them is religious and I would say more conservative or less liberal. And the other one is on the other other side of the scale. Now, if you talk to, uh, let's say, Trump followers, who their worst enemies are, they are the Democrats, you know, who have those pizza parties with Tom Hanks, you know, we all know that. They don't care about the Russians or the Chinese. The close immediate danger is your neighbor. It really seems that uh, it's uh, it's, very, it's like we need some kind of a uh, balkanization or to create some kind of a new libertarian model or do something. Because this idea that when people say today, the American people, or when people say today, the Israeli society, it's pure bullshit, you know? It's really, really like, I mean, you know, a racist, misogynic, conspirative, I don't know, guy who thinks that Trump had won the election, you know, and a liberal, uh, transgender juggler they don't have anything in common. They don't share the same value. If one of them is secular and one of them is religious and one of them vaccinates and one of them doesn't vaccinate, what is these things that they have in common? It's way beyond me. I can say to you that, you know, it's really like even this idea that, you know, when people say to to me, the Israeli people, I say, who are the Israeli people? Netanyahu? who's uh, now standing on trial, or the peace activist right now uh, in the West Bank trying to stop soldiers from, I don't know, uh, not letting uh, somebody go through a checkpoint. My father has this theory that you can check how much people have in common in their countries by asking them about what's the dominated, dominant and shared pieces of artwork, and he said, if it's poetry, it's a more monolithic society. Like if Walt Whitman writes Leaves of Brass, then at that time, if he's so popular, then probably the society has that in common. If all Russians read Pushkin and say, My God, he got it, then people have in common. You know, in Israel, by the way, in the 40s and the 50s, the most dominant artists were poets. Now, what my father said, if this unity breaks a little, then Prose will take the, the middle stage, the main stage, because prose, it's not built on associations. It's supported by narratives. So still, you can have the great American novel, you can have the great Gatsby, and even if people couldn't share a poem, they could share a novel. And my father said, and when they don't share a novel, it's a problem. Now, today, n- not in the US, not in France, not in England, not in Israel, we don't really share a novel. You know, we can have a book that will be a little bit more popular, but there isn't, you know, we don't have the catcher in the rye. We don't have these kind of things that is the Bible of a generation. We just have a bunch of groups of people and each of them can have their own book. And I want to say that when I say the poem, books, the things that replaces, replaces it, this common thing right now is basically, I would say, news. That's the mm. thing that unites us. And the way that it unites us is in the sense that, you know, we all share, let's say, frustration from our leaders, fear from changes or people who don't like us from our society. And this is the thing that we have in common. We This is the thing that get us out in the street. It's not the 60s that people go out in the street, you know, uh, because they want a uh, free love. It's like people go out in the street because they stole the election from them because they're not going to let them do things for their body it's really the entire the entire narrative is all about threats and forcing people and being forced by people and this is the major cultural space i'm not talking about survival this is the things that people talk about this is the things people watch on the tv this is the things that gives you push notices it's basically sitting there and being bitter and angry and afraid and aggressive this is the humanity's favorite pastime right now. And Mm. this is something that should be changed.
1: Well, we'll get to work on doing that at Substack and let's see how it goes. Great. We're coming to the end of the time, but I do want to ask, are there writers on Substack who you read that actually help you get this uh, better view of things that you think other people should be paying attention to?
0: Well, I I can say that, first of all, that I'm an old guy. So I kind of, uh, I think that the writers that I go with are uh, usually writers from pre-internet time. Mm. And I'm saying it as a bad trait that, uh, trait, that right now I'm much less adventurous than I used to be. Like in the past, mm. everything really interested me. So mm. I, I must say that, that, that the people that I, I follow, like uh, Joyce Carolos or George Sanders or Salman Rushdie, I think that I'm a really, really bad example for a sub-stacker. Because this is not this is not the way that you should Those writers are pretty. Those writers are pretty good. <laughs> no, but 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 I can say, and you know, and maybe it will sound like I'm showing off, but the, the reason that I follow them is because I know the three of them personally. So it's ah, mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, what Joyce is doing, and that I feel that I'm I'm such a cranky guy right now that I really don't have in me the things that I would I think that humanity needs, and that it's basically to seek new voices and to look for things that you don't really know. So sometimes I do it on Substack, you know, and sometimes I find stuff that kind of captures me, but I must say that uh, that I'm a bad subs. Stacker, I'm a bad substacker user. Well, you 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 may you
1: may hold that criticism of yourself when it comes to reading, and I won't object because I don't know what kind of a reader you are, and I don't live inside your mind. But you're a great substacker when it comes to writing, and I think everyone should go to Alphabet Soup and see these wonderful stories that you're telling there. And sometimes they're very short. Sometimes they're snippets of um, uh, screenplays you're working on or TV shows you're working on scripts. Sometimes it's uh, stuff from your archives, and it's. A wonderful community and a wonderful space and i think people should seek it out and enjoy it and i'm grateful to you for publishing on substack and thankful to you for also spending this time in conversation for the active voice
0: thank you thank you very much
1: you can find edgar carrots alphabet soup on substack at edgar dot substack dot com that's e-t-g-a-r-k-e-r-e-t dot substack dot com see you next week And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com.